0: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. There are very few true originals in the arts, For an artist, a writer, a filmmaker, or a sculptor, it is rare to find a creator whose stamp is so distinctive that his or her authorship is evident at a glance. Whether painting with words or with oils, the canvas is a mirror to the artist and to the consumer of that art as well. Of those rare creators, a tiny percentage of them are equally gifted in many of the arts. And our guest today is one of that small group of -of one-of-a-kind creators with an indelible signature. Since our conversation with Stephen King, by far our most requested guest is Clive Barker. My first exposure to his work was when Cynthia gave me one of his Books of Blood, Volume 4 to be precise, for Christmas, and it was emblazoned with a quote from King himself, I have seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. Boy, did Steve know what he was talking about. Clive has established himself not only as a brilliant and original author, but is an equally accomplished painter and filmmaker. I first met Clive when we were both represented by the same agency, and that agency held a party to introduce him to the American film industry, and we have been friends and worked together several times ever since. I'm excited that we're finally able to have him on postmortem to share his unique talents and insights with all of us. Now available for pre-order from Severin Films. The worldwide premiere of the unrated director's cut of Gabe Bartolosa's Skinned Deep, the insane directorial debut of the Frankenhooker brain damage effects artist, which Film Threat calls Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets brain damage, scanned in 2K from the negative and featuring never-before-seen gore with a host of exclusive special features. Also, the Blu-ray premiere of the director's cut of the grim 1970s Richard Speck story, Born for Hell, scanned from a recently unearthed 35mm protection print, packed with special features including testimonies on Speck from filmmakers Gary Sherman, John McNaughton, artist Joe Coleman, and Once Upon a Crime podcaster Esther Ludlow. Plus, the worldwide Blu-ray premiere of the 1980s Canucksploitation Shocker, Siege. Scanned in 2K from the original negative of both the theatrical and extended cuts. Visit www.severand-films.com. That's www.severand-films.com. Clive, thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're so welcome. It's a pity we can't do this in the flesh, but one day this pandemic will go away and we will actually shake hands again.
0: That will be nice. And speaking, of, be in nice. The, speaking of in the flesh, that was one of the things we worked on together that did not ever happen. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was. We've had a bunch of things that have happened, but we've had a couple of interesting ones that never happened. I was remembering thinking about us going to talk. I remember the mummy for Universal yes. uh, way back. We had a, a blast of a time working in that hotel room in London. Do you remember?
0: I remember very well. I was at yeah. Brown's hotel and your flat right. was not far away. I would walk over to you with pages every yep. day that I'd written yep. the previous day and we'd go over them page by page. It was one of the most exciting things I've ever done.
1: It was fun. Was it was I in that Wimpole Street house at the big at that time with the the big the big rooms was I was I within walking distance of Brown.
0: You you were indeed the yeah. Baron of Wimpole Street. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you, you go. Actually, well, not, I want to sorry, start early. I want to start yeah. early. I I want to I want to find out about your experience when you were three years old. You saw Leo Valentin mm-hmm. plunge to his death, and it had a really indeed. deep effect on you. Tell me about that experience.
1: Okay, I'll try and keep this short, though it's actually. It's a it's, it's a complicated story. Leo Valentin was a birdman. He was his performance was to, to jump out of planes at great height, and 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 on wings made of balsa wood and cloth would imitate, I suppose, Icarus as it turned out, um, uh, the circle around on these uh, artificial wings, and at a certain point when it was safer, you pull the parachute and uh, drift to the ground. So it was the last performance he was ever going to give. And it was in Liverpool. It was at Speak Airport, which is the local airport in, in Liverpool, my hometown, my own home city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was three. It was uh, high summer and uh, uh, very, very hot. And we had got in one car, the two families in one car, my, my aunt, my uncle, my dad, my mom, me and my cousin, Philip. Uh, who was younger than I, and we got into this very stuffy little Morris Minor, and we drove not to the airport itself because we didn't have enough money to get into the airport to watch this show. We had to wait outside, as it were, at the limits of the airport, the, the fence, the boundary, uh, which happened to be a, a, a small road, barely a road, frankly, a track, uh, and on the other side of which was the airport, and it directly opposing a huge cornfield. This is all relevant detail for what's about to happen. So mm-hmm. we all get out and we watch this tiny little plane because it was a, probably a, a two man plane or something like that, way, way up. And you know, I was three, I didn't really know what was going on. Uh, I knew I was to keep watching the plane, which I did, which is a very, very barely audible drone. It was August. It was very hot, and even the crowd that was actually in the airport, and there were a lot of people in the airport at the at the air show, were all very quiet watching this event. So we watch and we watch, and gradually I get the idea. Even at three, I get the idea. Oh, there's a guy up there, and he's coming down. And I didn't get the bit about the wings at all. <laughs> but my but my mum, my my auntie Brenda, uh, her sister. Uh, did uh, they? They seemed to notice before anybody else that something had gone wrong, oh, and it had. Uh, Leo Valentin, uh, as his last performance, was really going to give his last performance. He was he, an accident that happened. His his uh, his wings had caught on the superstructure of the airplane, and basically they smashed. Now that wouldn't have been a problem if he just pulled the uh, parachute you know pulled the cord and he could have drifted down he did pull the cord and the trashed the uh, wings uh, caught in the in, in the parachute and it failed to open it, it candled, as they as a parachutist would say it, it just failed to open and what my my auntie Brenda and my mom realized was that he was falling
0: oh my god.
1: And he was falling, I think it's 182 miles an hour, 128 miles an hour is the fastest you can possibly fall. Uh, And I guess he was probably falling pretty much at that speed uh, and getting bigger and bigger. And now panic, there's four adults there, two, two, you know, two wives, two husbands, and panic spreads amongst the, the adults. And I remember this probably more clearly than anything else that my mom began to shriek and she was not a shrieker. (laughs) My mom was Italian. She was very well. They were both Italians. I see both sisters and, uh, but the panic stepped in. And what I didn't realize was that they understood that His trajectory was going to deliver them very close deliver him very close to us. And uh, the closer he got, the bigger he got, uh, the more close they realized he was going to fall. Now I have to uh, sort of pass the, the pass the narrative over to my father's memory of this because for me, I was bundled into a car with, by two very, very panicked ladies. Uh, my, my little cousin, Philip, was bawling. Uh, it was a hot little car. I didn't want to get into it. I wanted to see what all the trouble was about. And I started to cry, Philip was crying, probably <laughs> Auntie Brenda and my mother were crying. Mm-hmm. And, and my father saw him hit the ground about 10 yards from where we were wow. in the cook field. And he was the first to get to the body. Uh, very, my father and I, had a a difficult relationship in some some places. He was not very forthcoming where I was concerned, but towards the end of his life, I could not help but ask him, well, what happened that day? Uh, I don't know how old I was. I was probably, you know, I I was certainly in my 40s or 50s when I asked him this question. So it had been 40 years since it had happened, at the very least. And I didn't really expect didn't have much memory of it. But he did, and he had a very clear memory, a very eloquent memory. My dad didn't speak elegiacally. That wasn't his style. He was very direct, pragmatic, uh, very loving and and, uh, intense man, Irish. And he, he said, well, there was no blood that we could see. He said he was face down and his arms were spread and the bits of his wings, which were still attached, Looked like birds' wings. So the image I had, and I asked him, I asked my dad that if I got the right image, was that he, with his uh, with his brother-in-law, Phil, uh, Philip, uh, Brenda's husband, uh, Jim, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Brenda's husband, approached through the grass, and dad said, I hope this was eloquent, he said, we didn't know where he was until we saw his shape. And the shape was the shape that was carved into the corn by the shape of his fallen body
0: oh my god
1: it was August so the corn was at full height it was close to harvest yeah so you have I don't know how 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 tall is how tall is corn I don't know four feet of, of, of bright yellow corn and somewhere in there the shape of a man bird carved into the corn by the death of Leo Valentin
0: my god well you were three years old and confronted with mortality for the first time in a way that no three-year-old should ever yeah
1: I suppose so I didn't I didn't see the body I didn't and so that image comes from the one I think the one essay which has supposed to be written about him uh, that I've read uh, and also and more importantly my my own dad's report of this uh, they did move him they did turn him over i don't think they had any expectation of finding him alive but who knows uh, and he said there was some blood on on his on his face and and but he wa- he wasn't broken he it was the way my father said it.
0: wow now
1: who knows what had happened internally to the poor guy uh, it was it was sad that it was his last show that he was retiring after uh, uh, many many years yeah yeah it was an extraordinary thing it was one of the uh one of the three most important encounters if you will mythical encounters it wasn't truly mythical but it felt mythical uh that uh, it, it entered my subconscious conscious and it stayed with me on un, unspoken unquestioned for a long time t- to the point where i wasn't even sure i'd actually seen it
0: mm. well, and then it and, seems to have had an effect on the direction that your work took as yeah. a writer and as an artist.
1: For sure. And there are birdmen all over my paintings yes. and drawings, including uh, drawings that I made before. I'd even brought this into my conscious uh, brain. And I, it took me a little while to figure out, oh, yeah, this did happen. I can probably research this. Now, this is all before there was internet. I couldn't put in, you know, Speak Airport, uh, you know, 1955.
0: Right. Uh,
1: onto onto wikipedia um but uh we did find or i found a book about liverpool uh it may be called liverpool days it had a, a short essay about this event and uh uh you know the opening of the proust novel uh, you know the memory comes with the uh, madeleine which is a small biscuit dipped in tea he <laughs> takes the Madeline, he bites into it and his past comes swimming back to him because of the recognition of this taste. So when the book made mention of the events that it had been August, that it had been hot, that that, that, uh, the sky had been absolutely cloudless and that this little plane had gone up into the air and out of it had tumbled a man who was about to die. All of that then came flooding and, and, uh, there was a certain recognition looking back over my work that I realized I've been drawing him for a very long time.
0: Amazing. Now, you're although you're a very gifted and accomplished painter, you didn't really start painting seriously until you were 40 years old.
1: I, I got into art school. <laughs> and my, my this is this is uh, when I was 18, oh. leaving uh, leaving Quarry Bank, and I went to to art school i got into art school and my mother and father were appalled <laughs> and they said but you're you're you you're smarter than that you don't want to be a painter
0: well your and mother I, was a painter right
1: my mother and father were very fine artists but oh, they both were of them. Huh. yeah well my my, my father in, in my uh in in my father's collectibles as it were and now i think in the hands of my my own brother, uh, was a a sketchbook that he did during the war. He was in Mauritius uh, during the war. Uh, I'm looking right now at a photograph of him uh, on his 18th birthday when he was dressed in his sailor's uniform and was about to to go out to Mauritius. Uh, He'd never left Liverpool at that point. He'd never once stepped out of the city of Liverpool. So it must have been an incredible journey for him to get on a boat and go all the way over to Africa, you know? Right. Uh so he 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 was a, 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 a he he had lots of stories to tell I should say and, and I hope we get on to lots more but they had uh different ta- talents as artists my mother was a was a, a representational landscape artist my uh, dad was a cartoonist, but really? when we found the war, war drawings they were beautiful portraits of Beautiful, beautiful women from from that period. I remember a beautiful drawing of Rita Hayworth, for instance, and wow. another one of Eisenhower, who of course was was the leading the Allies at that point. It right. was a it was a, a glimpse back into a period, you know, 1945, the war finishes. I was born in 52, so there was a, a seven year gap, which doesn't seem like very long now, does it? Seven years, oh. I mean, yeah to think that hitler was alive seven years before i was born
0: yeah seemed, well you seemed, and i are about the same age that's now. right yeah and yeah. our fathers uh, our fathers both were accomplished artists my dad never was able to make a living at it and i think i suspect that's the same with your dad as absolutely
1: well. absolutely true absolutely they were both passionate uh, amateurs uh but uh, they were very good at it they they also, perhaps, their experience was they never made any money from it. So they looked at their son, who was sort of uh, eager to get into art school, and mm-hmm. so the idea I was going to do a year in Liverpool art school, and then I was going to go to the, to the Royal Art School in London, the Royal School of Art. Right. And and you know that was my dream.
0: But and did it, did you shift interests? You shifted interests into theatre though at that age, didn't? Well,
1: you? I i been doing theatre. Before I went to to university, and so I ended up going to university on behalf of my mother and father. They said, "Listen, please go study something useful." <laughs> so I studied philosophy, uh, but, you know. <laughs> uh, but I did philosophy in English, and I did three years. And I said, "You've got to promise me you never ask anything of me again after this. I'm I'm doing this for you, and I'm putting my art uh, studies away for a while." And it turned out that I put them away for longer than I intended. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was over here in England, in, uh, in America and uh, had the space, frankly, uh, to, to, to paint uh, at the scale I wanted to. I built a studio for myself in the house I used to own next door. And uh, uh, it was a three-story space, and it was my dream space. It was my the studio of my dreams. And there I was able to paint, you know, I think one of the paintings is 25 feet long.
0: Yes. Uh, oh, I have seen that. It is yeah. so beautiful. I mean, your Thank house you. is a, gar, a gallery of astounding, original, fantastic art. Thank you. Yeah. That's kind of, Yeah, you
1: know, you know, my inspiration for it was Harlan Ellison's house. Did you ever go to Harlan's place?
0: I certainly did. Harlan and Ellison land, yes.
1: You remember? Yeah, exactly. You remember all the paintings? He had such an incredible collection of fantastic paintings that were, you know, classics with the colors of weird tales and all, all that wonderful 30s, 40s, 50s stuff. And I think he probably bought that stuff for a song because nobody wanted that kind of painting back then. Oh,
0: nobody wanted cartoon illustrations. Except That's right, fans.
1: It's true. They yeah. wanted
0: fine, fine art without yeah. realizing what is finer than Bernie Wright's and originals. Yes, or
1: exactly. Originals. Now, and I, yeah, we're looking at the generation before Bernie, aren't we? We're looking at the generation before Jack Kirby. Right. And, 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 you know, Harlan had had the, the, the taste to buy hundreds I would guess of uh, of, of such paintings and, and hung them all over his house. Did he ever show you his bomb proof house or bomb proof space, I should say?
0: Um I did not go into his bomb shelter, but I do know that you had to go through a hobbit door to get into it. That's, that's uh, right. I, I, I went into that room there.
1: And uh, behind the it shelter. was a was a was a was a locked room which he said would saw, would survive i don't know three atom bombs or something (laughs) and this is very hard, right you know
0: yes i don't Uh, know that i'd want to survive after three atom well that
1: that may be true just saying hello to the cockroaches when you get out Um, (laughs) uh, but it was uh it was an incredible room because in there he had the the, the, the books that he had collected over the years, which, and I've got this too, I don't have a bomb-proof room, but I've got these books, the books <laughs> I want to survive the apocalypse, the right. books which I feel uh, bespeak our culture, uh, and obviously being me, they tend to be fantastic books, horror books, science fiction books, fantasy books, but I think by and large, those genres, even now, are less respected than what we like yeah. likely call literary fiction yes
0: right the fact that there is a, a separation between literary fiction and popular fiction You're right, is kind of astonishing to me
1: it is but it's still going on i mean you look at uh, the pages of the new york times uh, literary review or basically any quote-unquote serious literary review when you come out with a book and you know this just as much as i do you come out with a book trying to get a review from one of those um, magazines or, or, or newspapers is very very hard uh mm-hmm. i've written i don't, 45 books or whatever and i think i've had two reviews the new york times
0: two uh, re- really and you are yeah. you know at the forefront not just of our genre but of fantastic fiction in general
1: yeah uh-huh. i just don't think they think it's serious fiction make uh-huh. i really don't think so i think what you said was absolutely right they there is a there's an inbuilt, uh, I almost want to say condescension, oh, yeah. uh, that if you use your imagination, uh, probably you're just. I think it's even in the. I think this uh, this problem is even in the word fantasy.
0: Yeah, you it's seen? an immature genre. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly, and it isn't.
0: No, I think uh, the greatest exercises of the creative mind go into fantastic fiction and fantastic
1: Fantastic, most of Shakespeare is fantastic fiction, right? There are ghosts in every single play. In other words, you, you, lit, literary fiction Shakespeare cannot be more literary than Shakespeare. Right. It's, it's, it gets as good as that's about as good as literary fiction gets. Yeah, uh, but it's filled with ghosts and prophecies and terrible acts of murder and and you know all the stuff of which horror and science fiction and fantasy are built
0: and it's been a lifelong interest of yours um and even when you were pursuing life as an actor and playwright in the theater Mm -hmm. but your first really big success was as an author with the books of blood Tell me yeah. about how that transition from liverpudlian and, you know, coming from the hometown of the Beatles, sure. and, uh, you know, pursuing theater and not pursuing your art, but then starting to type and typing stories. And then the God of all horror fiction, Stephen King. Yes. Uh, he knights you. Unbelievable. And uh, so I want to hear about how that changed your life. Sure. No problems. It's a, it's a, yeah. First
1: thing to say is I was born on the corner of Penny Lane, which is a Beatles song. Right. And uh, there's a mention of a barber in the Beatles song. And that was my barber's. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I was born 100 yards from the bus stop, which is also mentioned in the uh, in the song yeah uh, so when the song came out and i don't have a date for that do you have any idea when it was
0: well it uh, was probably the uh, penny lane was probably 66 or so
1: 66 there you go so i was uh, 14 and uh we had a, a sign attached to the wall at the end of the road which said uh penny lane yes and it kept getting stolen
0: we were, <laughs> yes it's a very famous sign
1: it's a very famous sign and uh uh you know you could unscrew it
0: mm. and
1: so uh when the song came out it was a huge song wasn't it oh, i mean yeah i bet we could both still still hum it and and probably <laughs> sing the words
0: i think uh, i know the words by heart yeah
1: <laughs> absolutely and and so here am i living now on this street the beatles have long since gone from liverpool Right. But the fascination, the focus upon Liverpool returns with, uh, uh, in, the, in the form of busloads of fans. Uh, yeah. Every day.
0: Including and me. I went there to see the castle, uh, the, the, yeah, the, cabin. the
1: cavern. The cavern club. You went to see when the cavern club? I was in
0: my 20s, you know.
1: I love it. So yeah. we, we could have met. Never mind. That would have be been <laughs> cool. Um, so you were in your 20s when you went to Liverpool? Yeah. Wow. So I would have, I would yeah, I would have been there.
0: Wow. That
1: is amazing. So you drove up to, oh no, you flew across.
0: No, I flew, I, I flew to London. I took a train to Liverpool because I was a huge Beatle fan as anyone who'd ever been a musician uh, ha, uh, would have been. Yeah. Uh,
1: how long have we known each other?
0: Uh, since that trip you came to, uh, to that <laughs> CAA party.
1: Absolutely.
0: So. so that was in the eighties.
1: Yeah, I was going to say eighty-six, or perhaps or all that time, and I'd known, i would never known. There you go. I never known that you flew over to Liverpool until this moment. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> now.
1: But but to, to pick but it back up, to the um, book. Back to Liverpool becoming a
0: a uh, successful be- author. You know, became from-
1: uh, uh, famous, and 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 I I had it in my head that I wanted to do something of significance, but I had a lot of interest, a lot of disparate interests, if you will. Yeah. And in fact, the writing of the short stories, which was the thing which was to mean most in terms of me finding an audience, was sort of accidental. I was writing short stories for fun, showing them to uh, people that you either know or know by name, like Pete Atkins, who yeah. uh, you know did a couple of Hellraiser movies and a lot of other wonderful stuff. Doug Bradley, who played Pinhead, of course. Uh, a bunch of people, a little, a little group of maybe six people that I showed these stories to. And somebody at one, and these were handwritten. I didn't type them. I've never typed. I still yes. can't type.
0: I know right? that about you, yes. You
1: know that too well. It's, it's <laughs> I've worked with You know, I've seen
0: those yellow pads, yes.
1: So, <laughs> say yes.
0: I've seen those yellow pads when I've been Sigan? working with you. I've seen the yellow yes, pa- illegal I, I, pads. A yeah,
1: magic I do. I do four. I do four drafts of things. So yes. I, are you know, seventeen thousand handwritten pages of, of magicka, and it's a form of madness. But, but I've been doing it for so long, Mick. I can't. I can't imagine doing it any, any other way. Sure. Does that make sense?
0: A, total sense. Once you Can have you? your. Once you've nailed your mojo. <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's a, it's uh, a, it it works for me, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, And it also attaches in my head to the process of drawing. I write, Hmm. I draw, I draw, I write. It's all interchangeable. Uh, I very seldom create a story or novel without having drawn the characters first.
0: Mm, Even
1: if they're very simple sketches, I need to know what it all looks like. I will always draw the, and it's, here's a question for you. I, I need to know the geography of a house before I write about it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any uh, parallel obsession or does not? Yeah. If I'm, you?
0: if, if a location is important to the story I'm doing, I absolutely need to, at least in, in my mind, uh, know I what draw the map it. Is. Yeah.
1: in your mind. Okay. I, I make little maps mm. so that, uh, you know, a top view of a house so that I can, oh, okay, the stairs are there. And, you know, it, it, it matters to me only because, and this is something I said before, I, I don't, I don't think of myself while I'm writing as a writer. I think of myself as a journalist reporting uh-huh. on something I'm seeing.
0: That's a something fascinating
1: I'm seeing. Point of view. Yeah. And, say on, sorry, I interrupted
0: you. No, no, it's a fascinating point of view. Uh...
1: Uh, yeah. Well, it's happening. In, it's happening in my mind's eye. And so, uh, the best thing to do for me, at least, is not think about the words, but think about the images and use the words to describe them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't know if this, is a, if this is a useful hint to anybody who's out there listening, who's who's having problems with 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 the writing process, but uh, taking yourself out of it. This works for me. Taking my craftsmanship as, as, as somebody who is shaping hopefully an elegant sentence out of it and simply describing with as much accuracy and economy and elegance as I can. Elegance, economy, yeah, uh, yeah, that's about it, um, uh, and accuracy. Uh, the, as long as I get those qualities in the final draft – the first draft and the second draft, which is setting down who's going where and who's killing whom and how much blood there is. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter uh, uh, whether I am present in that, whether I'm thinking about the craft of it. What matters is just that I'm seeing in my mind's eye something very intense, which my words are then describing.
0: I see. Was was it a surprise to you that your first success came as an author, as opposed to being a painter or a playwright or?
1: Well, I, not really. Not really. I knew it to do with words because I wasn't painting. If it, if I'd been painting, perhaps I would have been pissed off that I <sighs> that I wasn't being uh, uh, you know given a gold star for painting. But I wasn't doing that at that time. I was working with words. Uh, I. Uh, being commissioned to do three plays for a uh, a company. And I wrote those within a couple of years. And that was, those were big plays for uh, for about cast of about 40 people. So they were big plays. Uh, And I was pretty much written out in terms of doing my my theater stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I went to my theater agent, uh, Vernon, and I said, I've got these short stories. And I'd had them typed out. Uh, I wish I could remember. Rawhead Rex is one of them.
0: Oh yeah. Uh,
1: uh, Sex, Death, and Starshine was another one. Um, I will remember. I remember. We'll come back to that. Um, okay. cool. uh But there were five of them, and I, I gave them to Vernon, who was a a, a a gay man as as I am, and and he an older gay man, and he was appalled. (laughs) (laughs) He was appalled. And he said, these are horrible. And I said, yeah, they are, aren't they? (laughs) And and he he was a theatre agent, as I say, so he wasn't very familiar with uh, publishing. But he did know the people at Victor Gollans who were, Obviously, science fiction publishers, amongst many other things, mm-hmm. Olivia Golanz, who owned the company, ran the company, was a, a, a woman who wore pearls, if you will. <laughs> uh, and I only know this because when she read them, she clutched their
0: pearls and she said, get, get, Literally. "Get
1: this the hell out of here!" She she was as disgusted as Ronald was. Uh,
0: so well. I just, the fearlessness of your prose is something that's striking from the very beginning, because there's always, particularly in the horror genre, there's been a fear of sexuality, yeah. and your prose is fearless in terms of violence and sexuality and ideas, and, and it. it it is limitless. There are no self-imposed censorship, uh, issues in your work. And that, especially in the eighties was quite shocking.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, firstly, you've just made a connection for me in a way that I've never made before. What I said about being a journalist, mm-hmm. uh, a journalist is honest about what they're seeing. And I've never thought about this before until you just said it. Uh, you know, I'm fearless about what I'm writing. I'm not fearless. I'm just writing it. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying, gee, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna punch my way out of this envelope. <laughs> you know that we've been put in. Uh, it, it, if you will, it, it comes naturally.
0: Yeah. Well, now, your work knows no boundaries, and that is one yeah. of the identifying uh, earmarks of of Clive Barker's work as an artist. <laughs>
1: You know what I can't figure? I can't imagine why you would pick up the pen with boundaries in your mind. Mm-hmm. I don't see the sense in having a medium in front of you, unlike cinema, for instance, where limitations, censorship limitations are put upon you.
0: Right.
1: If you if you write something, uh, this is not entirely true, which is something I'm about to get to, but it was mostly true that they were to leave you alone. Now, there were some things you could not touch. And I wrote a story called In the Hills, the Cities. Oh yeah. Which was a, uh, I I think it was in the first three volumes, I'm not sure. And it was, it had two gay men as as the as the heroes or the the, the the protagonists. And they were in a way witnesses to the horror rather than of the horror. They weren't killing each other, they were seeing something which I don't want to Mentioned in case somebody wants to read it and it'll spoil it. But uh, they make love in a cornfield. Huh. A cornfield. I wonder yes. if there's any connection. There, go. Yeah. Uh, there you go. And they make love in a cornfield. And I mentioned the fact that they know the taste of semen on their tongues when they leave the cornfield. And my editor, because by that time the books of blood were. Uh, had be purchased for the lovely sum of 2000 pounds for all three, uh, for all three. And, and so I, I gave them, you know, uh, these stories and Barbara, who is my editor, she was a lovely lady. said we, we absolutely cannot publish this. Uh, this is 86, 85, 86, I think. Yeah. And she was, you have to tell me what it was like over here. I know that in England, uh, the the pro, it was it, homosexuality was not a subject which was much in the, in the news as it were. Right. Uh, 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 John Gielgud got arrested at one point, and that became big news. Uh, but uh, you know, there the weren't there weren't a lot of public entertainers who were openly gay. Bowie still still had to come along, you know. Uh, brain right. had to be invented, uh, there were no gay movies except right. pornographic movies, I suppose, but those weren't shown in Liverpool. So, uh, she said, "We we, we simply can't publish this. Uh, it's offensive."
0: Oh, wow. And
1: and so I I I'd been paid two. I'd actually been paid half of my two thousand pounds as an advance. So I had one thousand pounds in my pocket for fifteen stories. <laughs> And I said, you know what? Uh, thank you, Barbara. Here's the thousand pounds back. Um, uh-huh. I'll go somewhere else. And I left it. I took. I took the stories back and went. And about a week later, they called and they said, at least let us censor it. And I said, absolutely fucking not. No. 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 I haven't come to you with my my books, my stories in order for you to tell me what I can and can't do. If you don't like it, that's fine. I've already left. So let's be friends and bye-bye. Uh, eventually I, I, I wore them down and mm-hmm. they published the story and it won the world fantasy award and the British fantasy award and so on and so forth.
0: And so there you go. So you were, there off we go. you were off. Yeah.
1: But Nick, here's the interesting thing. Uh, Years pass, and I I, I give to uh, my publishers, Harper Collins, a book called Sacrament, which has a gay hero, right? Which, and yes. All, has, the whole thing plays out all over again. And I don't know, uh, I'm just looking around to see if I've got a copy of Sacrament anywhere near with a date on it, but I'm thinking it's, I don't know, 2000? Mm-hmm.
0: I have it right here. That was okay. the book of yours that brought me to tears because of the dog.
1: Oh, God. They're, they're, uh, that happens in Cold Heart Canyon, too. Yeah, yes. I, I'm yeah. big with
0: dogs. Um, <laughs> yes, it, you did are. Do you have
1: a date on it? What does it say?
0: Uh, let me see. You know what? I'd have to dig it out of the... Oh, do no, 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 no worries. Yeah, don't worry. But, uh, but It was when it was, but it was recently. It was in the early 90s, I believe. Early
1: 90s. Okay, there you go. So it's a... It's a it's... Uh, Sacramento a whole, was
0: 95.
1: 95. So it's a whole different era, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And and uh, what's interesting is I had given them a page-size uh, summary of what the novel was going to be, uh, which included the homosexuality of, of the uh, of the hero, Will.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, uh, so it wasn't as though this was a big surprise to them. And it took me 15 months to write the book. I turned it in. And there was silence, which is oh. not a good sign. <laughs> Never Even good after
0: sign. all of the success you've had in publishing. Even
1: after all the success, exactly. So uh, I get a call eventually. They say uh, the head of the company was flying out to see me, <laughs> which was a second sign, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I happen to like this guy a lot. I thought he's a very nice guy. And uh, he took
0: me to a
1: very fancy restaurant for lunch. And I... I, I did. <laughs> the
0: third sign.
1: <laughs> you, well, yeah, it was. You're absolutely right. It was. Uh, the fact that he didn't eat was a fourth. But the, the fact is I didn't. I didn't figure it out. I, mm-hmm. I was so comfortable with the fact that we'd, that I'd earned my rights, as it were. Uh, I would to, say yeah, yeah. was well, to to feel like i was comfortable you know in this with these people in this audience uh but he said uh we can't publish this crime. and the hero is gay hmm. and i said G- jesus but you know who who am i look at me you know it wasn't as a big secret to him it wasn't as a big secret to anybody no you know huh. uh i i so i was deeply disappointed and i said look i uh, i'll give you i think it was 350000 000 or something like that dollars I, I said I'll give it your back no problem and i will find another audience another uh, another uh publisher yeah and he said well wait 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 he said <laughs> I, I we we've we've worked out what to do and i said okay what are we going to do and he said well every Every time he did, you, you, he has a, a scene with a he. You just put an s on the beginning of the he, and it becomes a she.
0: I can't believe the UK. I would have thought was much more progressive. No, this
1: the is U- U- This was the U.S. I was. Oh, living. the
0: U.S. publisher. Uh, no,
1: I. I yes, that makes the,
0: sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I,
1: sense. yeah. So he 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 flew out, and he actually said uh, he flew out from New York and said. Yeah. Uh, just to tell me that uh, all I need to do is turn the guys into girls oh. and all would be fine. Oh. Now, the book is about the uh, uh, the villains of the book. Or, yeah, the villains uh, are what they call the killer of last things. Uh, they kill the last mating pair of any uh, species which is going to extinction, an issue which has become more and more urgent. Yes. Uh, you know, twenty-six years on, I—I uh, I think the book was nobody seemed very interested in that part of the book when I published. But I, uh, you know, you know how obsessive I am about animals, and and I, you know, I'm in a house with a lot of animals right now, and and uh, there's two dogs and a parrot in the room. I'm sitting here, and uh, and it's it's it was. It was a book which was about the issue of animals being driven to extinction, but it was also about human beings who were also being driven to extinction. And that was any minority. Right. Right. So there was, as far as I was concerned, as being a member of one of those minorities uh, uh, and having uh, had a lover murdered which is one of the reasons why I came over here yeah. uh, to escape that fact.
0: Uh, to not have the freedom to speak about your experience well, as a human yeah. being exactly. just because of your sexual orientation well, is kind of shocking to me. I mean, I've not been confronted with that as a heterosexual male, but, but you know, it's certainly uh, just you telling me right now is shocking well, to me.
1: Have you ever been censored, me?
0: Oh, yeah. But then most okay. of my work has been as a filmmaker rather okay. than yeah,
1: yeah. No, in I books in,
0: in your case. yeah, As a writer, no, because I've never really been with one of the major publishers you've been with. My books have been with relatively smaller press. So that's given me more freedom in, in the fiction that I've written.
1: So nobody has ever come to uh, your fiction and said, uh, you know, even with a word or two, change that. No. Wonderful,
0: wonderful. Yeah, but I also don't sell books in the millions, my friend.
1: <laughs> no, no, but, but, but the thing the was that thematically,
0: yeah.
1: sacrament was about the loss of things.
0: Yeah. Well, the the loss is palpable. When uh, when the dog has to be put to sleep, it is one of the most heartbreaking and sob-inducing things that I've ever
1: read. Char- yeah. I, we just lost Charlie. A, dog, um, uh, a very close to our hearts and uh i have to put in a, f- a footnote here which is just lovely i saw on the news two or three days ago that major who is Biden, one of Biden's two dogs is right. the first pound dog ever to be in the white house
0: isn't that great
1: isn't that awesome
0: i, I love, love that. that
1: i love that and such a beautiful dog too yeah uh so, yeah, you know, i sorry, silly footnote, but I, I you know. No, the, no, I, I love it. Yeah, I do too. I, it seems to me it seems to me it's symbolic in some way of, of, of the fact that having been a palace for a pretended king yeah. uh, in Trump's time, uh, Biden is letting in the pound dogs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, nobody needs to let the dogs out. Yeah.
1: Exactly right. And <laughs> I, you know, it was interesting. Because once Trump was asked, well, when are you going to get a dog? And he said, oh, please, can you see me with a dog?
0: <laughs> I think he's the only president who didn't have one.
1: I think that was observed in the in, in the piece, yes. Yeah. Uh, that uh, almost every pred- president was identified with a dog or even dogs, plural. Yeah. 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 Uh, but well, he...
0: Sorry, go on. No, no. Just one thing I wanted to get to was I've always... You and Stephen King come at horror from completely opposite ends. And it's interesting to me, Steve will take a story and set it in your neighborhood with people you're familiar with, and then take one slight step to the left into the other natural. Whereas you build worlds that are completely of your imagination and make them real and believable.
1: And then put somebody who might be you, the reader, or your wife, or your girlfriend, or your boyfriend into that world.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. And make it real, even though it is completely of your own device.
1: Thank you, thank you. That means a huge amount. We haven't had this conversation there. It's interesting that we're having these these conversations on in, in a public forum. But it's lovely.
0: Yeah, yeah um, I love that. It's
1: lovely. The, the for me the the the. Two things happened to me when I was a kid. Uh, the, in my imagination, I was the the, the entertainment in the Parker household was get Clyde to come down and tell the guests about his secret friends.
0: Oh, nice!
1: And I could witter on endlessly about my secret friends, uh, who I saw around me all the time. And who I could describe in great detail, and could even take people to their locations in the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, we lived in a terraced house. It wasn't a very big house, but it was a it was a very warm and loving house. And it was complicated in its layout. So, and I literally did this to somewhat surprised guests. You know, as a four or five year old, I would climb the top of the stairs, and there were two places at the top of the stairs where. Two friends of mine lived. Now, uh, you know, lots of kids have overactive imaginations, and I was just <laughs> one of them. Um, but for me, they were a protection. I was a, a, It felt, I've always felt like an outsider, not in a bad way, not in a whiny way, not in a woe is me way.
0: No, I think but most creative people are outsiders.
1: I think that's right. I think that's right. I think if, if you walk down the street with your hair the, the color it is and the length that it is, you have immediately said, I am not of you.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm right. afraid that's probably true. Yes. Uh,
1: no, not a, don't be afraid of that axe
0: <laughs> I, I so, wave my freak flag. Yeah. There you go. Proudly. Cynthia
1: yeah. is Cynthia is so beautiful and so elegant. Yeah. And yeah. so uh uh tall and imposing.
0: She uh, is you, tall. She's five foot ten. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that, you know he, Cynthia is one scene never forgotten, right? That's
0: true, I that, agree with you more.
1: And the same is. How long have you guys been married?
0: Thirty-nine years. Yeah, the, shortly it'll be thirty-nine years. You,
1: you, you had colored hair back then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. My hair was short and brown when. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh boy! But you know, the two of you are an incredibly. Outsider, you, you, you establish from the moment, from a glance, that you are not of this earth. You know.
0: (laughs) Hopefully, in a positive sense.
1: (laughs) Always in a positive. Coming from me, that's always in a positive sense. Absolutely, my favorite Uh,
0: outsider. Yeah. There you go.
1: (laughs) And so, and and let's look at that outsider tradition. Shall we? Just for a moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: uh, Colin Wilson. Uh, uh, wrote a wonderful book called The Outsider. It was the first book he published. Mm. And he was talking about the art, uh, artists the, in the European tradition who were utter outsiders, like uh, Van Gogh, for instance, an utter outsider. Uh-oh. Van Gogh ne- never, paint, never sold a picture in his life, uh, mm. except to his brother, you know, who was doing it to put money into his pocket. Right. Uh Obviously, he had a very troubled life. Committed suicide, cut off his ear, and gave it to a prostitute. Uh, it, you know, it was a, it was a terrible life. He was deeply, deeply unhappy all through his life. Yeah. And we look at his paintings now, and that outsider who was largely despised uh, by his culture, by even. In many cases, by his friends, he moved in with Paul Gauguin uh, so they'd be painters together. Gauguin couldn't stand him. He was away. He was out of there. (laughs) So I think Van Gogh was lonely, probably very lonely. And I think that is is the, the issue with a lot of outsiders, with a lot of artists. And that's why it's wonderful that you and Cynthia have been together for 39 years because you're not lonely. You're with each other. That's yeah. why I, and I've got Roman in my life. You know, we are both outsiders too. And, uh, and I count in, 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 in that party of, of, of supporters, as it were, my animals. Yeah, my, you know, of course. Uh, malingo, like my parrot, who's sitting four feet from me and <laughs> hasn't said a word yet, which is good. Um, you know, she's a yellow headed Amazon. She's gorgeous too wonderful. And uh, she's with me 24-7. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I've been sick for a long while, as you know, and I haven't been able to leave this room for two years. I wasn't able to leave this room. And she was there all the time. And twice a day, she will get up uh, down from her perch. She's never in a cage, locked in a cage. She's always free. And walk over to me. Uh. Which is, I don't know, 10 feet probably. She then gets right down by my feet. I will not have heard her. She just comes <laughs> over silently and she makes the tiniest sound, uh, like a tiniest little I'm here. Yes. We love you. You know? Yeah. And then she climbs on my finger. And yesterday she did the most adorable thing. She fell asleep on my finger. Oh, <laughs> it was so cool. For 20 mm. minutes, she's. She sat on my finger and and uh, and dozed. Um,
0: now so, listen to this beautiful conversation from someone who has written the most bloodthirsty, <laughs> most bloodletting, violent, sexually perverse, uh, outrageous films and books of all time. But well, I find that to be a trademark of most of the people in the genre. They have the softest hearts. Yes.
1: yes, and I think uh, I think the. How do we say this? I think uh, most people who write about pain and suffering are super, super sensitive to it. Yeah. And and have often been in their lives through a lot of pain and suffering. It's true. Uh, I cannot watch anything happen. I'm a vegetarian almost until the doctor says you need to eat some chicken chum. Uh, <laughs> no. But I, I don't like doing that
0: yeah, I'm a uh, vegan for the same reason. I love. Uh, that.
1: And I think if anybody I've always said this, I say the the most passionate of meat eaters could I could take them into a slaughterhouse, and I guarantee that many of them would walk out deciding they were not going to eat any more meat.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know you touched on it, but you had a very severe health situation yeah. that uh, you were having dental surgery. Yeah, you went into a coma and it really rendered you out of commission for almost six years.
1: Yeah. Uh, And, you know, to this day, I'm still I mean, I haven't left this room today. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, you know, it makes you uh, I woke up after a long coma and and uh, thought I was being uh, set upon by aliens. Uh, uh, imagine you, you go into a coma, you, I'm doing my teeth. It's 10 o'clock at night. I've been to the dentist that day. I'm doing my teeth and that's all I remember. And then some many days later, uh, uh, the, the screen of the, of the, the screen of my eyes lights up Mm -hmm. and I start to see things. And what I see is people with masks on and people i don't know and i was not breathing for myself they had a you know a, a breathing apparatus down my esophagus right.
0: you were intubated yeah
1: exactly and they wanted to take it out and i uh, i don't want to go into the grisly details but you know that's not a very pleasant thing no. uh i was unconscious when it went in so i didn't know about it now i want to they wanted to take it out, and I wasn't about to give it up mm. because they were aliens.
0: <laughs> oh, wow.
1: They were torturing me. Why were you doing this to me? And there wasn't anybody in the room I knew. So all I had was these strangers, weirdly dressed in a room I had no knowledge of, uh, trying to do something that seemed to be affecting my innards, you know, because when they're pulling a tube, that's 18 inches down into your belly or your lungs rather. uh, And they start to pull it out. It feels like they're turning you inside out. And uh, eventually the doctor said, if you don't let this go, I will open your throat. Oh, wow. Now he, he meant that benignly.
0: Right. (laughs) But it didn't sound, it it didn't sound
1: benign, (laughs) but I, but I, eventually, after I think some 45 minutes of struggling, released the thing, and, and uh, half a day later I was fully conscious. But comatose states are, don't let you go easily. It's yeah. not like, uh, you know, in movies perhaps, you see somebody comatose one moment and awake the next. Yeah. And boy, that was a good sleep. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not like that, you know. Not what it's, it's like. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, a coma has its claws in you and even though it might relax them a little it doesn't relax them entirely for a long time
0: well it kept you in its claws for six years you were unable to work you you weren't writing and but the good news is you've written two novels and a book of poetry since then yeah no i you're doing great and and you're working on some stuff together yeah we, we we're working on a
1: lot together and i uh i am uh, you know, I'm back. I feel as though it's been a long waking, but then it was a long sleep and wow. and I also feel as though in a way I've been given not just a a, a second chance but a, a new energy, a new imaginative energy.
0: Mm, uh, that's fantastic.
1: yeah you know, maybe I needed to ra- relax a little bit, I don't know, but it, <laughs> it felt it, it felt to me as though as I began to awaken to what I'd done. And this is weird because I, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff, which I didn't realize I had written. When wow. I came back from the, uh, these are things which were not published, but I had written and finished. Wow. And so there's, uh, there's a, uh, I don't know, uh, 1,300 page handwritten, uh, novel here, uh, which has no title, but I wrote before the coma, obviously, and is new. I mean, it's new to me, <laughs> except <laughs> well, that except it's it exciting. has my, it's yeah, exciting it to me. It's yeah. a sign sort of it's like a discovery in a way. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful,
0: uh, it's, it's a whole new day. Well, I'm thrilled to look forward to new books by Clive Barker and new projects Thank you, by Clive Barker. I mean, that's great. You know, I I don't want to disappoint the audience by not talking about the films that were and were not made, some of them with you and me and others. I mean, I had written a screenplay for In the Flesh for Warner Brothers that I was going to direct. Um, we worked together on a pilot. The first thing we wrote together was Spirit City USA. Which I still love. It was a a wonderful pilot for a TV series. We did a couple of stories on Masters of Horror. um, But. uh, And now we have,
1: let's talk about what we've got coming. We've got Clive Marcus' Theatre of Blood.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's very exciting. It's an anthology of all new stories um, of your device, and I will be producing with you. And, and Absolutely.
1: Helping. And we're doing them all in Britain. We're going back to the country that produced Frankenstein and, and Jekyll and Hyde and Dracula. And I say country, by that I mean Britain. Uh, you know, uh, Dracula was written by an Irishman. Uh, right. uh, Jackman Heiser, by a Scotsman, um, and and uh, Mary Shelley, of course, was 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 English. that one note to bring this conversation full circle: we were talking about Wimpole Street, the yes. house where I, the Georgian house I, I, I owned, absolutely opposite, was uh, the house where the Barretts of Wimpole Street lived. There's a movie called "The Barretts of Wimpole Street." I, and I the, you know the you know the, you know the uh, the poet. Robert Browning mm-hmm. uh, uh, seduced the daughter of the house uh, uh, who became his wife. And so directly opposite, they have a blue plaque on the houses which have contained luminaries, you know, in in, in Britain, right. yes. London, yeah, the blue plaque houses. So there's right. a blue plaque beside that. And there's a blue plaque on the house next door to me. I was at number 36 because Dolly Salvador Dali had lived there for a period with wow. his, with his, uh, with his uh, uh, patron, uh, Edward James. Uh, he devised the, the, the very famous sofa, which looks like Mae West's lips. Oh yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, so it was, a, I was surrounded by the ghosts of artists. and When I wrote a Magica*, which is the last book I wrote in England, uh, my then boyfriend had gone to America ahead of me to this house, and left me uh, deliberately, as planned, to finish a magicka in the Wimpole Street house, which is five stories. So I was one one man in five stories of Georgian house
0: yes.
1: at Christmas, and the snow came down, and I got to write the last I don't know maybe three hundred pages of a magicka all on my own for four and a half months in this empty Georgian house it was uh, and I, I just remember sitting at the door at the at my desk looking out the window and seeing the the snow uh uh drifting down lazily on Christmas day and feeling like this was the perfect place to be to say goodbye to an epic wow. which is what you know it was uh so if there is a falling note in 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 the text at the end of uh, a magicka in which they're all making their plans for the future, but also saying goodbye to something at the same moment. It's because uh, I was doing that. I was wow, saying goodbye stunning. to London.
0: That's yeah. stunning. Um, and, you know, yeah. the question I'm asked most about yeah. is, is the mummy. We were... <laughs> We were working on this. Uh, you wrote the story. I wrote the screenplay with you, and you were going yeah. to direct it, yeah. and it never happened. You know, they never even told us anything after we turned in the script. They <laughs> never said no. We're not going to do it. It's so no. blew their minds. It was, yeah.
1: You know, what do you? And tell them, tell 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 everybody why it blew their minds. Tell well, them all about it. A little no. punchline.
0: I'd much rather you tell it because okay. this was your story and let them know how it was different from the usual mummy in that it was uh, mostly modern day and set in Beverly Hills. Absolutely.
1: Hill. It was <laughs> modern day, and, and, but it also had the first uh, the sex, Trans- gender change, right?
0: Yes, transsexual. So, yeah.
1: Transsexual. So this is, what year is this, Mick?
0: That had to be uh eighty-nine or so.
1: Okay, so we were ahead of the curve. We can write. Oh, yeah. say that. <laughs> so, well, you
0: were always there. You just There you, you go.
1: <laughs> so there is a so there is a boy born, a boy child born at the beginning of the narrative, who is obviously significant in the narrative, but does not appear as an adult later on. We cut 20 years and there's no sign of this guy, apparently. Right. There is a wonderfully strange, mysterious woman who is part of the narrative, very important part of the narrative. Mm. And I don't want to say too much because we're going to make this one day.
0: I, um, I hope so.
1: I hope so too. Uh, it, it, we should talk to Netflix. The, uh, the, the, the little boy uh, who is born at the beginning of the narrative has become this exquisite woman. And uh, a major part of a modern day narrative about the money. And, uh, you know, this is our naivety, I think. How could we ever have thought in 1989, (laughs) when we turned this in, that they would say, oh, great.
0: I never did (laughs) <laughs> I never, In, I thought they're never going to
1: make this movie. Okay. I'm I having one faith. hell of a time. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that we had, that we had, yeah. but you know, I did. And I think I've always had a a, a slightly naive, <laughs> naive attitude to people who,
0: to the money, if you will, the suits.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: it can serve you well, that naivete sometimes. Yeah, yeah, well, it,
1: it means I go into things whether or not. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm not going to. And maybe, you know, uh, maybe a a circle is turned, and eventually, what seemed impossible when I wrote *Sacrament* now Mm -hmm. becomes plausible. Maybe *Sacrament* will be a a movie now.
0: Yeah, Uh, maybe. Maybe our
1: money, with its, you know, its its boy who becomes a girl, uh, and a major part of the narrative can be a movie.
0: And Uh, in addition to that. Yeah. Underneath Beverly Hills, there was unearthed a pyramid from the yeah, days well, and
1: <laughs> And I wanted to I, I wanted to make sure that we used the 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 the, the secret life of every place. Right. It turns out it turns out the, 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 the town the house I'm living in right now was built by a man called Ronald Coleman, who was an actor, the star of Lost Horizon. Yes. Uh, yeah. And yes. So he built, he built this house and in the 20s, I think. And it was the first house in this canyon. And so it has history and it has, you know, the original plaster work and all that stuff. And I, as you know, because you've seen it, I, I reconstructed it pretty much about the way it was.
0: Oh, no, it's beautiful. Yeah.
1: And I, I like to honor the past because we don't we know nothing about the secrets. Yeah, Uh, you know that are hidden in our world. Sometimes hidden in 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 plain sight. And so, one of the things, and we'll talk about this soon off the air. uh, But I've got, I've got eleven cities, eleven locations. I should say they're not all cities, in England, in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, for our theatre of blood. Mm -hmm. And I started to to look into their histories my lord the number of stories that have never been told
0: mm. uh well, especially probably, through the filter of Clive Barker that's the well
1: yeah i mean the, yes. i had a I, I i don't know we don't have much time i realize but let me just
0: well we don't me. have a hard out so we there you go
1: okay so yeah. that sounds very pornographic but okay <laughs> the, 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 the i was i used to t- teach playwriting and one of my one of my pupils was this Lovely young lady called Rose, and I asked her what her job was one time after the the uh, the lesson, and she said she was one of those people that you saw in hazmat uh, jackets, you know, the white hazmat jackets with, right. with with breathers on. And I said, well, what did you do? She said we went into play, we go into plague pits.
0: Oh my God!
1: And I said, well, wait, 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 how many plague pits are there? <laughs> and she said, in London which is where we were. Uh, uh, Every few months, we are knocking down a building, extracting uh, earth from uh, a problematic pipe or whatever, and we find things that have been buried and, and were not realized to be there. And one of the most common things is plague pits. Oh. Blackheath, which is a Blackheath, which is a, a, a part of South London, stands for Black Plague Heath.
0: Oh wow! Well, I know there are movies like Raw Meat where they're building, <laughs> the, the, constructing the tube, uh, right. constantly discovering plague pits during the
1: course. <laughs> Absolutely. The, 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 well, the tube is another thing. Uh, the, <laughs> tube is one of ours, the tube is one of our. The tube is one of our to, to yes. write it
0: yes, yes,
1: because uh, it was an extraordinary thing. But uh, what was fascinating to me was the most gentle, sweet of ladies, Rose, was telling me that her daily job <laughs> was to get into a hazmat jacket or suit rather and investigate the most morbid, the most, the darkest. I wrote a story called The Life of Death, which is about right. this. And yeah, she described to me how at the front of the, uh, oh, let me do it the other way, at the back of a pit, at the furthest part of a pit, people would be buried in a very orderly fashion with, in coffins and, and uh, probably put to rest with all the appropriate rites and prayers and so on. And the closer you got to the door, as it were, the more panicked it was. Yeah. Because the oh. plague was taking a greater oh. and greater grip. Wow. Now, what are we What are we watching in our culture right now? We're watching we're, that.
0: We are. The, we're, watching, rushing, we're watching we, Brazil,
1: we're uh, uh, you know, uh, hire, uh, uh, you know, freezer vans to put bodies in.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so, and this is... This is, I suppose, more about history that it's circular. That everything comes around, everything, the happy and the sad. Yeah,
0: really? it's true.
1: Well, it, it, you it, know, it's something we sh- we should go and explore again.
0: Yeah, and I I think I don't want to I don't want to go without you talking think, uh, about your experience in the film world because okay. transitioning from a novelist or from an author into a <laughs> filmmaker they yeah. are the the opposite job. One is sitting by yourself in a room with a keyboard. The yes. other is being in the middle of the maelstrom of a hundred people, actors, crew, thousand questions a minute, all of that stuff. Uh, you had some joy and you had some disappointment with Hollywood and the filmmaking process. Yeah. Tell, tell me your overall thoughts about being a well, film.
1: I'm when still here. Better. And I, I, I got a movie or two. me Yes. I think, uh, Hell, raise, you know, I, you, the, the difference is is I think that um, movie making is an orgy and writing is masturbation. It's, <laughs> uh, it's as simple as that. But the 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 <laughs> the horrors of movie making are are about power, aren't they? They're about people who don't have the the passion that you or I have for making movies. Uh, who really only have the passion for money who want to change what we're doing because they think the way they want to make it will make more money. And uh, that's a source of sadness and irritation to me, as I'm sure it is to you.
0: Uh,
1: uh, We've both of us uh, got away with a lot more than uh, perhaps we might've done. I mean, Hellraiser for a very, very small amount of money. So I was 31, I'd never directed a picture before. I knew pr- pretty much nothing, but I'd been in theater and directed in theater. So I was, I was I was okay with that part. And you know, you're surrounded by wonderfully talented men and women who who have done this, who have taken uh, 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 taken years to learn their craft. I hadn't, I was just doing it by the seat of my pants. Uh, Nightbreed, which was the next picture I made, uh, was cut to ribbons by the company that, that made it, uh, but was then reconstructed. So there's now a director's cut, which is pretty much as I intended. And uh, uh there was an big 11, a big difference, a big yeah. difference, and uh, there was 11 minutes missing from Lord of Illusions, which was also put back eventually. And then, you know, the, the, the fight you have, and I've had it. On a literary level as well as a, a cinematic level, as I've explained with the with the gay content, there's always people who are always trying to make it their way.
0: Right. And uh Well, even I, with the, your first time out with Hellraiser, you yeah. made the movie you wanted to make, but they had to replace all the English accents with American ones.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's always fiddles out there. Uh yeah. however, I wonder my my mom, my beloved uh, mom who passed away a little while ago. Uh, I was too sick to go to her funeral, but Mm. I got a recording of the funeral. And as her coffin was taken out, they had decided to play my way.
0: Oh my God.
1: Which was absolutely perfect for my mother. Wow. My mother uh, (laughs) did it her way. And uh, I... I learned a lot from my mom, and and uh, she she was a willful, willful but very civil lady. Yeah. And I've always thought, if if I give it my best and do it my way, even if it's wrong, at least it was mine. And that's the uh, the philosophy, if you will. William Blake, the the po- poet mystic of England, says. Make your own laws or be a slave to another man's.
0: Wow. I cannot think of a better way to go out than that.
1: There you go, my friend. I love you, Mick.
0: Uh, I love you, Clive. Thank you so much for this. And I can't wait to get together and start working out our theater of blood. And give a hug and
1: a kiss to Cynthia for me, will you please?
0: You got it. Okay. Take
1: care, gentlemen. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Clive. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.